home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Seasonal salutations. My name is Doug, and welcome to this special episode of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. What makes it special? Well, for starters, it's been less than six months since the last episode. (laughs) That's special. I have got to do better. As 2018 fades into the rearview mirror and we look ahead to 2019, I want to take this opportunity to look back on three news stories. Mm, No, not exactly stories. News topics, maybe, from the last year. Three things that you may have heard about. Anyway, this is kind of a year in review thing because this is the time of year that everyone does a year in review thing. So let's get into it. I want to start with the election. No, not that election. We had elections of our own in Canada. We had provincial and municipal elections in 2018. And let's just say that the Ontario provincial election was interesting. Now, I steer clear of politics of any kind in relation to my website or podcast or Twitter. Not getting involved in political discussion, and I'm using quotes for discussion on Twitter, is really really hard. But I am using Twitter as an extension of thumbandhammer.com, so therefore, no politics. So I'm going to try to talk about this in a nonpartisan way. So get ready for a little political history. I promise not to bore you to death. In Ontario, we have three political parties. We have the Progressive Conservatives, or PCs, the Liberals, and the New Democratic Party, or NDP. Conservatives and Liberals are pretty self-explanatory. The NDP is left of the Liberals. So if you're American, think of it as Bernie Sanders territory. We had an NDP government in Ontario back in the early 1990s, and, well, that didn't go so well. And Ontario voters tend to have a long memory, so let's just say that the NDP have a long uphill battle. Then we had a couple terms with the PCs from 1995 to 2003. Okay, PCs did a lot of hacking and slashing, as conservatives tend to do, but a lot of people welcomed that after the NDP. You know, the pendulum swings. All right. 2003, we are ready for a change and we elect the Liberals under Dalton McGuinty. 2007, we elect them again. And again in 2011. But then in 2012, McGuinty resigns and Kathleen Wynne takes over the party leadership. In Canadian politics, we don't vote directly for the leader. It's about the party with the most votes whose leader leads. Now, you would expect after three elections and a leadership change in the middle of a term would have spelled doom for the Liberals. And by all accounts, Tim Hudak and the Progressive Conservatives were the heirs apparent, but 
Mr. Hudak's popularity seemed to decline the more he spoke. He talked about eliminating 100,000 public service jobs, for example. Not exactly a platform to win over voters. So by the time the election rolled around, the Liberals won again. So, Kathleen Wynne remains Premier of Ontario, and to say that she was not well-liked would be an understatement. Now, I'm not going to dive into the politics here and try to convince you of whether or not that was warranted, but by 2018, after 15 years with one party, Ontario was ready for a change. I mean, it doesn't matter who ran against the Liberals. The desire for anyone else was strong. So here we are now in 2018, and it's obvious that the Liberals are not going to win the election. NDP? (laughs) Not very likely. So everything is pointing to a progressive conservative victory come election time. Can you imagine being the leader of the PCs when you are pretty much guaranteed the win? That's the position that Patrick Brown was in. And then he got me tooed out of there in January. Allegations of sexual misconduct. The election was in June. The PC scrambled to elect a new party leader. And emerging from the leadership convention was Doug Ford. If that name sounds familiar, you may remember his brother, Rob Ford, who was mayor of Toronto and, to put it mildly, a national embarrassment. For example, in 2013, he admitted to smoking crack cocaine, blaming it on one of his drunken stupors. Rob Ford has since passed away, but for a time he was fodder for the late-night talk shows in the U.S. A national embarrassment on an international level. Yeah, the dude was kind of a mess. Anyway, Doug Ford was a city councillor in Toronto. He ran for mayor in 2014, but lost. When the PC leadership came up in 2018, he threw his hat in the ring, and he won. And the PCs went on to win the provincial election. The Liberals were decimated. Now, you have to understand that Doug Ford is often compared to Donald Trump. He is often referred to as Trump light. And he has had the same kind of effect as Trump. People either love him or hate him. There is not much in between. But like Trump, he has a take no prisoners approach to everything. Slash and burn. Let the next guy worry about picking up the pieces. Again, I don't want to get too deep into the actual politics here. Anyway, the boy has been busy since winning the election, and I will link to an article in the show notes that details everything that he has done in just six months, and you can make up your own mind. But there are two things in particular that I want to talk about. I know it took me a long time to get here, but here we go. One is the cancellation of cap-and-trade legislation. Basically, what cap-and-trade does is put a limit on carbon emissions. That's the cap. 
the government creates and distributes pollution quotas. That provides incentive for firms to reduce their emissions so that they can sell their quotas rather than having to purchase them. That's the trade. So, I guess to simplify, large profitable companies can afford to pollute. That's one way of looking at it. Now, the government reduces the cap year after year, so arguably overall emissions will decrease over time. The problem is, is that firms pass along their cost to the consumer, so higher prices for us. So in the short term, you can argue that removing cap and trade saves consumers money. And who doesn't like to save money? But removing cap and trade also removes the incentive to reduce emissions. Whether you believe in global climate change or not, we all need clean air and clean water. We just don't want to pay for it. Removing cap and trade was not a popular move amongst environmentalists, and companies that already bought permits for future use were not compensated. But for a lot of taxpayers, it was it was an attractive, shiny object. We like lower prices, or at least the illusion of lower prices. To oversimplify, the environment is not a priority of this administration. The Ford government has also cancelled the Green Ontario Fund. Now, what this fund did was help people retrofit their homes and businesses with green technologies. So, if you bought a smart thermostat, or energy-efficient replacement windows, or if you added insulation, you would get a rebate from the government. Plus, lower utility bills, a lower carbon footprint, less energy demand. Yeah, it's all good. But that fund had to come from somewhere. The taxpayers. And Doug Ford is all about cuts. So, the Green Ontario Fund went bye-bye. And this has affected me, personally. Sort of. I got an estimate for insulating our garage and basement. The total cost of the project was $3,000. And because the basement is living space, we would have qualified for a rebate of about $400. That's gone now. So, you've got homeowners who probably should be making certain energy-efficient upgrades, and the green-on rebate would have made those upgrades more affordable. Now, maybe they don't do the upgrades at all, or they delay them. And that results in higher energy usage and higher emissions and all that. Maybe it wouldn't make a huge difference to the environment, but then again, every little bit helps. So, to recap... Ontario elects the Doug Ford Progressive Conservatives, and the environment takes a hit, and homeowners lose out. Let's move on, shall we? The summer of 2018 also brought us a happy little diversion. Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler returned to television as hosts of a new competition show called Making It. This was a lighthearted competition show that featured makers with different areas of expertise. There were a couple of woodworkers, a felt artist, a paper crafter, and so on. The key word here is lighthearted. Sure, it was a competition, but 
there was zero nastiness that you see on other shows. And even the judging was tempered with kindness. No Simon Cowles or Gordon Ramsay's here. Interesting story behind the name. Making It is the name of a podcast hosted by Jimmy Duresta, Bob Claggett, and David Picciuto, who are all makers on YouTube with large fan bases. Now, rather than sell the name, they came to an agreement to allow NBC to use the name. All amicable, a gentleman's handshake. Jimmy Duresta used to be on television, well, cable television, with his brother John. Trash to cash, hammered, and dirty money. Plus, he hosted his own show, Against the Grain. After television, he has focused on YouTube and has a successful channel with almost one and a half million subscribers, plus other collaborations. Jimmy Duresta is friends with Nick Offerman, who is himself an amazingly skilled woodworker. And Jimmy Duresta had a role on the television show Making It as a helper to the contestants, basically helping with the power tools and making sure that everybody works safely. It would have been nice if he had been featured more prominently, but it was still kind of cool seeing Jimmy Duresta return to television. Anyway, to get to my point, if you follow some of the makers that I follow on YouTube, you will quickly realize how interconnected everyone is and how welcoming they all seem to be. Ignoring the inevitable trolls, everyone seems to be positive and supportive of one another, which is, let's face it, something that is really needed these days. That's YouTube. Making it the TV show had pretty much the same positive vibe. The maker movement goes mainstream on network TV. NBC has renewed the show for another season, although at this time, it's not looking like Jimmy DeResta is going to be involved again. That's unfortunate, but at least it will be a season two of the show. And that brings us to my final story. Just in time for Christmas, Hasbro introduced us to a new Monopoly game. Millennial Edition. With the tagline of, Forget real estate, you can't afford it anyway. Instead, you collect experience points, like concerts or dining out or vacations. Get it? Hilarious, right? Is anybody else tired of everyone dumping on millennials? It's getting kind of old. These darn millennials only caring about experiences. Hipsters with their ironic beards and tiny houses. As if those are bad things. Now let me first state that I am not a millennial. I am, apparently, Gen X. I always considered myself to be at the tail end of the baby boom, but the baby boom ended in 1965, I was born in 1967, and that officially makes me Generation X. Back in the 90s, they were saying a lot of things about Gen Xers that they say about millennials now. Lack of work ethic. Entitled. Lazy. Yeah, go figure that after spending tens of thousands of dollars on an education that you would feel like you were entitled to work at a job that paid more than minimum wage. Yes, we all have to start somewhere, but school loans are not going to wait until you move up the ladder. So yeah, a sense of entitlement is 
understandable. And let's face it, not much has changed. You want to talk about hipsters with their ironic beards? The lumber sexuals? Okay. We had our goatees in the 1990s. We had our mullets and big hair in the 1980s. I have plaid shirts, not because they're in style now with the lumber sexual thing, but because they were in style in the 90s with grunge. And my shirts are more than 20 years old. But let that sink in for a second. Mullets were once an acceptable hairstyle. Who the heck are we to judge? Forget about real estate. Whose fault is it that millennials can't afford real estate? Job security is a thing of the past. You can no longer count on being able to work for the same company for 30 years. Coincidentally, first mortgages tend to be 25 or 30 year loans. But you also have the affordable housing crisis. Why? Because it's more profitable to build higher end houses. We see affordable houses being torn down and properties redeveloped. I mean, if you're a real estate investor, that is the way to go. Sure, we've been sold the dream of home ownership and all that, but maybe, just maybe, millennials aren't buying into that. When you rent, you can be more mobile. You're not tied down to a piece of property. Want to move? You don't have to worry about selling. You just don't renew the lease. So, I don't know the actual reasons or the accuracy of the millennial real estate relationship. Maybe it's about the affordability. Maybe it's about a change in philosophy. Maybe we're moving beyond the apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz and the idea that a man without land is nobody. Maybe we're getting back to basics. And maybe that's why we're seeing the tiny house movement. Tiny houses are more affordable and more environmentally friendly. Those darn millennials caring about the environment? Tiny houses represent minimalism to the extreme. But let's think about traditional houses for a minute. It used to be all about keeping up with the Joneses. Bigger was better. Bigger house. Bigger car. He who has the most toys when he dies wins. But let's look at the big house. What? Do you need all that square footage for? Stuff? A lot of our stuff takes up far less room than it used to. TVs used to be big boxes that took up a lot of floor space. If you're of a certain age, you probably remember when TVs were in wood cabinets and were more pieces of furniture than they were electronics. Now we have flat panels that can be hung on the wall. VCRs used to be huge. Then they were replaced by DVDs and Blu-ray players, which were much smaller. And now we don't even have those. We stream everything. Stereos used to be all about big speakers and multiple components. Turntable, equalizer, cassette or 8-track, radio. These were all individual pieces that were stacked. And our music collections, vinyl, 8-tracks, cassettes, CDs... Those all took up room. Now entire collections can fit on a USB drive the same size as a Bic lighter, or in our phones, or in the cloud. 
Speakers are no longer the dominating monstrosities they used to be. Go to WishBookWeb, wishbookweb.com, and take a look at the catalogs from the 1980s, and you'll see what I'm talking about. In the home office, you would have to have a big desk for the computer tower, the monitor, the keyboard printer, scanner, and other peripherals. You needed a file cabinet for your paperwork and bookshelves for books. The desktop PCs that still exist are much smaller than they used to be. We also have laptops and tablets which are smaller and more portable. So we no longer need huge desks. Paperwork, if it exists at all, can be scanned and stored digitally. But we have gone largely paper-free, so we don't have as much need for file cabinets. Books? A lot of that has gone digital as well. Don't need as many bookshelves in our houses when we can access entire libraries on our tablets or Kindles. When you map the usage of the floor plan of a house, some rooms get used a lot. Other rooms are used very little. Do we really need 2,000 square foot houses when we spend most of our time in less than half of that? I think you get the idea of what I'm trying to say here. Scoff all you want at the tiny house movement, but if you change your mindset, it does make sense. Finally, let's talk about experiences. Millennials are all about experiences. Is that somehow supposed to be negative? Valuing experiences over things? What the bleeping bleep is wrong with that? May I get a little philosophical for a minute? What are we doing here? Whether the result of some sort of cosmic accident or a chemical reaction in the primordial ooze or divine creation, whatever you believe, we're all somehow living on this blue marble that's hurtling through space or on this flat earth that's under a dome. But again, whatever you believe. And life is short. 80 years, give or take a couple decades. It's not really a lot of time. So how do we spend that time? Do we spend it collecting things and then spending time with our collection of things? Or do we actually go out and experience life? Whether it's enjoying concerts or dining out or traveling. My mother, you know, I've talked about my mother before on this podcast. I've talked about how for her, a knickknack became a tangible representation of affection. That's the fancy way of saying that she appreciated things over experiences. Going out for dinner for her birthday was nice but it wasn't really a substitute for a physical gift. And I want to be careful here. I in no way want to imply that my mother surrounded herself with clutter or was a hoarder in any way. I can see where you can make that kind of assumption. Anyway, my mother took the trip of a lifetime in 1953. She was born in 1929, so you can do the math there. She was the youngest of three girls, and she was the only one to be born in Canada. 
the rest of the family had immigrated from England. And in 1953, she took a little trip overseas. She was in London for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And she visited some of her aunts and uncles and cousins. And she traveled to Ireland and Holland. And she would talk about that trip for the rest of her life. When my wife and I were planning our honeymoon in Europe in 1999, one of our destinations was the Netherlands. And my mother's eyes would light up as she talked about how beautiful Holland was. My mother passed away in 2002. Her health had been failing for years. She had high blood pressure and emphysema, the result of a lifetime of smoking. She had, in fact, died in 1999, collapsed, and was revived. So it was a bit of a miracle that she was around for our wedding a month later, and then for the birth of her granddaughter in 2002. She had spent three days in the ICU in 1999. The first in a coma. The second conscious, but incoherent. And the third, sitting upright in bed watching a video of Titanic. Let me tell you the sense of panic I felt when I walked into the ICU and saw three or four nurses around her bed. But they were all taking a break and watching a bit of the movie with her. That was my mother. She was, she was a fighter. But when my mother went in the hospital in 2002, it was for the last time. We later cleaned out some of her stuff at home. And in her nightstand, we found travel brochures for London. These were new. It wasn't like she dug out old brochures from the 1950s and was reminiscing. These were current brochures. Almost like she was planning a trip. Such a trip would have been impossible for her at this stage in her life. Her health would never allow it. But there she was, towards the end of her life, longing to travel again. Life is all about experiences. The day our daughter was born, Mom came to the hospital, and I swear that you could see her eyes sparkling from down the hall. Just pure joy and happiness and pride. I mean, there was no comparison to her reactions when she opened Christmas gifts or Mother's Day gifts, no matter how perfect those things were at the time. I mean, God bless her. My mother had literally died a few years before. She had difficulty getting around. She got winded easily. But she was not going to let any of that get in the way of the experience of seeing her granddaughter for the first time. My mother's trip in 1953 was three weeks. Her granddaughter's birth, let's call that one day. Her knickknacks and figurines and tchotchkes, well, those last forever. But if you were to ask her at the end of her life, what was more valuable? I think we all know what her answer would be. So why exactly do we ridicule millennials or anyone else for putting a high value on experiences? Why would Hasbro turn that into an ironic joke to base a game around? 
Okay, I'm done now. Um, with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. I want to thank you once again for listening. My website is thumbandhammer.com, and you can find me on Twitter at thumbandhammer. I would like to give a shout out to Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast for taking the time to answer a few technical podcasting questions for me. If you are interested in true crime, UFOs, missing persons, his podcast covers all those topics and more. You should check him out at nighttimepodcast.com. And if you have any home improvement questions or suggestions, you can drop me an email or leave me a voice message at thumbandhammer.com slash contact. I would love to hear from you. So until next time, cheers.